Uh, if you're visiting new, super glad that you're here with us to worship Jesus and uh, love him and learn more about him, uh, primarily uh, found in his written word, which we love to read and study and celebrate. Now, before we dive into Ecclesiastes, the book that we've been in, let me just uh, address the obvious. Um, you know, yesterday, uh, wickedness continues to ensue. Uh, evil continues to be ever-present, right, as we live under the sun. I find it profoundly practical day in and day out as we've been walking through Ecclesiastes and as we witness the life and mind of the world around us to see that um, is it not so true that we are constantly wishing we were back in the garden that we got kicked out of. So um, that's why we're constantly wanting to get back there and Christ is the only way back there. And as we see all of the uh, befallen man before us, we need to remember that Christ does offer reconciliation with God and that the people of God are supposed to be the brightest lights that shine in darkness, right? Darkness can't drive out darkness, but only light can do that. We need the light and life of Jesus Christ. So uh, the events down in um, Charlottesville, I mean, I have a number of good friends. I, I live just an hour north of there, 45 minutes north of there before we moved up here to plant this church. Uh, so I have a lot of friends that are, that are down there that were involved uh, in witnessing that, being a part of that, and just seeing straight satanic evil. Um, so we always need to remember, too, as the people of God, that we have to acknowledge stuff as it is, and we have to work in prayer and as the people of God to show people a better path, uh, that it's not going to work through institutions. I'm going to keep saying that. It's not going to work through the government. It's not going to work through the political regime. It's going to work through the people of God as the gospel falls and transcends and develops and transforms disciples that make disciples that transforms and transcends culture. Um, and so I just want us to take a minute as we lay into Ecclesiastes because um, understand the Bible is always relevant. So we talked uh, last week about how it has a contemporary ring to it even though it was written thousands of years ago. So you have to look at your Bible and understand that your Bible um, is helpful and present as we look and see the life and mind of the world around us the second we leave this space. Um, so we want to have a biblical lens as which to understand and see the world. So um, I don't know if uh, some of you guys, uh, a few of you guys wrote me a few emails saying uh, it's amazing that we've been in Ecclesiastes in particular as I begin to see the world now, I begin to understand it with a more sense of fullness. And that is so encouraging to know uh, that God's word is expanding your mind and helping you see the world rightly. So um, let's take some time. We always want to pause and ask the Holy Spirit of God to speak, to clarify, to give us wisdom, give us insight, to illuminate what we need, but also maybe you need need to take a moment to pause and just sit in the evil and wickedness that happened yesterday and call it what it is and ask that God might awaken you more to its realness uh, and the desperate need for a risen Christ to invade the darkness. So let's just take a moment of pausing um, to ask God to give you what you need this morning. You come in here burdened. You come in here with anxieties. You come in here with um, other thoughts, with a scattered mind. Ask him to hone you in on the truth. If you're here seeking God, I know we have many people who step in this place who are not familiar with the Christian faith, not familiar with even the scriptures. Might you ask him to reveal himself to you in a way you can understand. You might say, God, if you're real, if you exist, would you bear yourself on my heart in a way that I can't escape today? Would you help me to see glory? Would you help me to see splendor that is not found on this earth, but found in a God who lives above and over the sun, as Solomon would say.
God, thank you for the space that you've provided where we can sit and glean from you. Thank you in the space you've provided where we can be with like-minded brothers and sisters to be uh, built up, to be encouraged, but more importantly, to be driven to the truth, God, to be scrubbed clean of sentiments and feelings that are not realistic and have reality laid before us. God, might you encourage those who need encouragement today. Might you help those who need help today. Might you convict those who need conviction today. Might you straighten the path of those who are on a crooked path. Uh, God, we just want to see more of Jesus Christ. want to know more of Jesus Christ. want to know why we should celebrate him more than we do. So help us to do that. And God, I just pray for those in Charlottesville. I pray especially those who were victims of evil. Uh, God, that you might comfort families and that the gospel of Jesus Christ, particularly Portico Church and other churches down there, that they would be vessels of grace, agents of grace, agents of life, agents of clear thinking and clear speaking amidst a world that is totally confused and driven by their depravity. God, might you awaken people to what's at stake and give us continued courage in the great gospel that we love and hold on to. Speak to us now, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Ecclesiastes chapter 9 is where we're going to be. We're going to finish up Ecclesiastes 9 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, I always say you can grab a Bible in the back. And uh, thank you that you guys have been taking those. We always say we want you to have a Bible to look at. It's always on the screen so you can see it. We want you to know that we're actually reading from something. I also want you to know that we're not making stuff up or changing verses or tweaking anything, that you're looking at the same Word of God that I'm looking at so you can also discern how to read and know your Bible in the same. Um, just to let you know, um, I know there's, there's lots of new people can continually asking and trying to discern this thing. And this is a, what we believe is a worship service. We worship a God. He is a triune God. He is one God and three distinct persons. There is God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit. And uh, we believe that he reveals himself a number of ways um, through the work of his son, Jesus Christ, through creation, but also through his written revelation. So the scriptures are his written revelation where we read all that he's given to us. So he has disclosed himself through 66 books that make up the inspired word of God. Remember that the word of God is inspired and inerrant. I am an inerrant man that is not inspired. And so we ask God to always hold, help us hold on to the things we should hold on to and forget the things that he might want us to uh, forget. So we worship this Jesus Christ by reading and studying the word. We do it by singing songs. That's why we just sang. We don't do it because we think we just need to add that in, but because God commands us and encourages us to lift our voices to talk about this Jesus Christ and what he's done and celebrate him well in that way. Uh, we worship Jesus by observing the Lord's Supper each week where we are nourished by the saving benefits of Jesus Christ and his person and work. We want to remember that, keep that on the forefront of our minds. We worship Jesus by giving generously because God gave most generously in his son. We give on the boxes in the back. I always say if you're a new attender, not a member or regular attender, don't consider this your church home. We're not looking for cash. Uh, we just want you to know the redemptive story of Jesus Christ. So we're thrilled that you're here. Uh, that's where our greatest uh, love and hope for you. So um, in our Bibles, we're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 9. And um, in this book that has 66, in this one big story, really, it has 66 books, you'll find genres. So you can start at the beginning and see basically creation to, through God's law, that was to teach that there's a law given by God to show that he was holy, not so much that you could keep his law, but that you couldn't and needed somebody who could. And then you have the prophets that start declaring that there is a God who lives over the sun, who is infinite in perfections, and he has a 
perfect code where he reigns in righteousness and we can't live up to that. And so they keep proclaiming and telling there's a deliverer, there's a Messiah, there's someone coming who's actually going to perfectly fulfill that law and live a righteousness you could not live, die a death you could not die as your substitute in your place for your sin, rise again and gift you his spirit and make you his kids and give you eternity. It's a, a glorious story. So after you get through prophets, you have in their wisdom literature, which is where Ecclesiastes is, you have gospels, there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those talk about the life and teachings of Jesus Christ. This is the Jesus who came, and those writers want you to not just look at his life and know facts, they want you to be transformed by that. And then you have letters in the New Testament that write to churches and to people, us, the people of God, showing us how we are to live and operate as people redeemed by this great, good Jesus. And so um, out of all those different places, it's synonymous in storyline, it is God's revelation to us. And we've got Ecclesiastes in the wisdom literature. You have five books there, and basically, I say, a lot of wisdom literature is not necessarily prescriptive as much, or as descriptive as much as it's prescriptive. So you have Proverbs that talks about basically how to use your time, talents, and treasure wisely for God and for his glory. You have the Psalms, which are more to be sung probably than actually said. It's like the hymnal for God's people. You have Job, which deals with evil and suffering, the sovereignty of God and pain, and um, how do we respond to that in a way that glorifies him and enjoys him. We have um, uh, Song of Solomon, which deals with sex, romance, beauty on the confines of the marriage relationship. How do we understand what God has designed us to be as a humanity? And then you've got Ecclesiastes. And I constantly say that Ecclesiastes is the book as I was walking through the scriptures that frustrated me the most because he just lays before you a bunch of questions and doesn't necessarily give you all the answers, right? So if you miss his method, you'll miss his message entirely. You have to know that this guy wants you to be pushed and probed to think rationally, to think honestly about life so that you might discern what is meaningful. Is my life a waste? Is there an eternity? If we come from nowhere and headed to nowhere, then have enough intellectual honesty to say my life is totally meaningless, right? But if we do come from God and are headed to God, then life here is profoundly meaningful. And so we've been seeing who we believe is Solomon addressing us with this problem of meaning. And he's been relentlessly driving us towards the questions of why am I here? What use is life? And I constantly say it's to function more like a bath than a meal, right? And there are some books where we just spent two years in Luke. If you're with us, that was just a, a meal, right? We just ate on the word of God and we're stuffed full every week. And not that you're not stuffed full by truth every week, uh, but this more wants to scrub you clean of sentiments and feelings that are illusions and not reality. Uh, that's what Ecclesiastes is meant to do. So uh, here in the end is what Ecclesiastes is going to say. And I want to remind us of this because it's, it matters for this morning in the text that we have from uh, Solomon. And that's this. Um, you need to constantly evaluate your life. And not just evaluate your life, well, how am I doing? You know, how's my 401K? How's my family? How are my private devotions? Like, evaluate the grand scheme of your life amidst the story of redemption under the son of a God who's working and saving and making a people for himself. So as you see this, as you read this, he's going to say, if you chase everything under the sun and not the God over the sun, you're going to totally lose. So if your sole directive in life, if your sole pursuit is the New York City career, uh, wealth, achievements, fame, 
fame, just wisdom, if that's the sole pursuit of your life under the sun, human speculation, not given divine revelation, then you're, you've totally lost. So he goes, don't let that be your treasure. Don't let that be what you chase. Chase the God who's over the sun and sent his S-O-N son under the sun to bring us to understanding of who he is, if, you've tr- if you're tracking with me. So uh, I know that's a lot, but uh, that's really what he's getting at. So if you're just wondering what's the point of Ecclesiastes, that's his point. You've got to see him. You've got to get beyond the ceiling of your life and the vain pursuits that are total vanity if death is the end, if there's injustice and unfairness and the innocent are locked up and the guilty are wandering free and there's no system that's in place beyond us, then man, this place is a chaotic circus and we should just do what we want. And so he's going to show us why that's not really helpful or even wise. And so this morning... If you've been with us the last eight weeks, you've got to go listen if you haven't, because he's really going to just keep summarizing the last eight chapters in Ecclesiastes. And here's what he's basically saying again. Let me give you some more wisdom. Now, now we know that's practical for Solomon because Matthew will say he's the second wisest in the world compared to Jesus Christ, who was obviously the wisest man ever walked the planet. So we have Solomon saying, let me give you some more wisdom. He's kind of moved on from that bleak laments, like just sorrowful, woe is me, everything's awful, everything's bad. The first like four weeks together, you guys were all leaving super depressed, writing me emails. Man, Ecclesiastes stinks. Like, why can't we move to like, I don't know, something really happy? Just read Psalm 103 or like something else. I'm like, well, we could, but it's in the Bible, so we need it. So he wanted to get you to a bleak spot so you could celebrate his goodness, okay? So uh, now we're kind of coming out of that, and he's showing you the way out of the bleak laments of a world that if God does not exist, if he does does not rule and reign how uh, awful this life would be, but we know the good news that he does and that he sent Christ. So here he's going to say, apply some wisdom to your life. Now, here's what you have to understand as you hit verse 11. All wisdom in the scriptures is ultimately founded upon Jesus Christ and his work. Okay, so Wisdom in the scriptures is not just worldly wisdom, okay? Um, He's not trying to get you just to think positively. He's trying to get you to think rightly. Now, that's super important. Listen, if you want positive thinking, if you want wisdom from the world, you can go to Dr. Phil, you can go on Oprah, you can go to Barnes & Noble, you can grab any book you want in the front that'll say, hey, here's how you think positively. Here's how you dig up all your past habits, all the shame, all the scum, just dwell on it, look at it, and somehow, miraculously, you're gonna learn how to move on from it, okay? The Bible's gonna say, no, you look outside of yourself to a power from a person and presence that is God in Jesus Christ through his Holy Spirit that enables you to be made new, not just nicer, not tweaked, but a, literally a new creation of yourself. And so he's going to show you, I want you to think rightly, not just positively. And this is huge for us because we live in a culture filled with psychology that's just positive thinking. Okay, so we have to understand when you read wisdom, it's always to think right. So here is what he's going to say. And again, we're seeing the age of Solomon as he begins to repeat himself. Uh, And we're just going to cover a few new elements here in this text. Verse 11, he says this. Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. But time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared in an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. So he's just reminding us, the last eight chapters, I've been observing things under the sun. This is my memoir to you. You're sitting on grandfather's lap, paying attention to what he's learned in his life. And he basically shows that under the sun, remember, if there's no God over the sun, life seems perplexing and probably just straight maddening. 
Because he goes, you see all these situations and circumstances that, that don't make sense. You have to do something to make sense of these things. He goes, sometimes, man, you're going to see a guy who works out in the gym every day who's strong, buff, ready, and he goes into a bar and gets sucker punched and knocked out by a skinny guy half his size. You're going to see the student that studies endlessly in school, gets valedictorian, should have every job waiting, goes in for the job interview, has every reason to receive it, and the boss says, I just want this to be a family thing, and helps their son or daughter who's never even been to college. You're just going to see stuff, right? I mean, you've seen this in New York City as you go to work. You're seeing this around you. The, the, the world around us does not make logical sense at times. It seems perplexing. It seems maddening. And we talked about this at length last week and the week before. So he says, from our perspective, it'll appear as though everything is just happenstance. It's going, oh, well, you got bad karma. You got bad luck. Oh, that just happened because you were doing something bad. You're going to find all these ways to diagnose issues. And what we really believe and what we've learned to understand is everything is under the sovereign rule and reign of God. That it's not happenstance. It's under God's providence. That even when we feel like things are out of control, God is still in control. So nothing's really out of control. It's under his control. And we don't have time to repeat all those things because of things we've discussed. But he's really just basically warning us again. Warning us in two ways. One, uh, be careful that you organize your life in such a way to where you think all of your things are going to happen the way they want and never expect anything to happen unexpectedly. Uh, if you've lived long enough, you know that you don't know what tomorrow's going to bring, Right? You know, the sun might come up. That's about it. You don't know what's going to happen at work. You don't even know what's going to happen in your marriage. You don't know what your spouse is going to say. You don't know what your kids are going to say. You don't know what life will bring at you tomorrow. And he says, sometimes if you're not prepared, if you don't have wisdom, if you don't have the mind of Christ, then you're going to suddenly be caught up in this net and snared like a fish and be so perplexed. Why in the world is this happening? How could this thing occur? How could that person get that job and not me? How could this happen? How could that happen? He's just reminding us of a life under the sun. And he's also warning us on leaning on our own natural way of thinking. That's basically what he's been doing is he's been taking us out of the bleak laments. Be careful that you don't think in your natural mind. Like we think not with a, a, a mind any longer that's set on the flesh. We think with a mind that's set on the spirit. We need wisdom as we see the occurrence and changes of life. He's going to show us that you need a God over the sun to change your spiritual sight. True life, true meaning is gifted by God. So he's summing up these eight chapters going, as you see the madness of life, as you see the futility, as you see death, as you see the guilty walking free and the innocent behind bars, as you see injustice, as you see unfairness, as you see all of these things, we are left with two options. Pursue the mind of Christ or pursue foolishness, God, God's wisdom or man's wisdom. Uh, and he's going to give an example here. Uh, you can either, either live your life through human speculation or divine revelation. Uh, so he gives this kind of parable and shows that obedience to what we already know as wisdom is the key. Verse 13, here's what Solomon says. I've also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. He's going, hey, perk up. Like, this is important. Of anything I saw, hey, this is something you need to pay attention to. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered the poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. 
The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of the ruler among fools. That's wisdom for today. We hear stuff shouted and screamed. It's foolishness. Right? We need wisdom in the whispers. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Here's the big idea. Uh, Solomon is basically saying, I've seen something. It's tremendously important, so pay attention to the story. There was this small town. They had an army. Not a big army because it was a small town. This big army comes by and just sieges it. Now, what that means is you basically just suck it dry of its ability. You make it frail, so you cut off water supply. You don't let hurting people get out. You don't let other people get in. So you wait till people there were just super weak, super frail, dying of dehydration and maybe lack of food. Then you come in, just take it over. So that's what this city did. And he goes, however, in this small city, there was a wise man. He didn't appear to be wise. He, I don't know, he was poor. He might have just seemed like he was someone who was uneducated and no one wanted to pay attention to him and he knew the way out. He knew how to deliver this city. Now here's what, um, before I go any further, uh, you have to understand. This section in Ecclesiastes, I was studying this. Here's what I learned. Well, first, it's written in Hebrew and it's actually one of the most complex places in the Old Testament to understand in its Hebrew. Right, so look, I got five commentaries all saying something different. So you got one belief that Solomon actually saw this and witnessed this. He's telling us his story. You got another that says, hey, this is just a parable. This isn't actually something he saw. You have some people say the ending is this wise man. They listened to him. They were delivered. And then they forgot what he said. So they were led right back into their foolishness. And then some believe that they disregarded the man altogether and just continued to live the way they wanted and were taken over by the army. Listen. You go study it, work it out. Let's just get to the meat of what we can all see, which all of these things uh, correspond to. Um, Either way, here's the point. The biggest, loudest message is not always right. Like, where are you gleaning wisdom? All the secular historians, all the people who are shouting out, you know, from the political realm, from the front, saying, this is right, this is right. Just go on Facebook yesterday and your mind wants to explode. Right, I mean, everybody giving their loud, clear message. He goes, sometimes it's in the whispers. Sometimes you gotta pay attention to the Holy Spirit of God. That still small voice that teaches you through his word and through God's people. Or are you just swept away by the current of the latest affairs of life? How do you glean wisdom? How do you learn to walk in rightness? How do you see the world? What teaches you to think? He's saying, not the guy that gets up and just screams, among everybody else in their foolishness who goes, oh, yeah, 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 tell me more, tell me more, just because they're loud. He says there's another thing that teaches us how to think. The words of the wise are heard in quiet. He's getting at the understanding of obedience. Um, wisdom's presented before you, the poor man, and some of us totally disregard him. And don't want to follow or listen to him. This is Jesus, is it not? Comes humbly, obscurely. People are like, why listen to that guy? Right? Galilean carpenter? He claims to be God? He claims to have the answer for sin? He's not bringing down the torch right now. If he was really God, he'd bring down the torch. He was meek. He was humble. And yet wisdom was profound in that which he spoke. Because it gave eternal life didn't just give positive thinking, he gave right thinking to all who would listen to him. 
So there's this plea in Solomon kind of in here as he's being, you know, leaving this kind of bleak laments and heading towards deliverance, towards the shoreline of heaven. He's basically saying, hey, listen, you've got to learn how to think right and where to glean your thinking. So let me ask you a question. Is the biggest problem in your life right now that you have a situation, whatever it is, that that you genuinely have no idea what to do? Is that your biggest problem? Or is your biggest problem not that you don't know what to do, it's that you do know what to do, you just don't want to do it? I would argue the latter. Right, just, just I sit down in counseling and emailing. It's like people know what God says. People know God's word. People know what obedience would look like, but they don't want to do it. You should pursue solid Christian counseling. Nah, I just don't have time. Even though you know that's what you should do. And the meanwhile, you're sitting around going, I don't know what to do with this situation, and you blame everybody else. Right? It could be at work. Man, I don't know what to do in this situation. I mean, I'm just miserable, so I'm going to be lazy. No, you know the scripture would say be a good witness and work at it with all your might because you're working for the Lord and not for man. You just don't want to do it. He's saying, listen, there are situations like this where wisdom is right before you and it might not look like what you want and so you'll just go do something else and you will get steamrolled by the wisdom of the world. It will not give you life. It will bring death. You will get besieged. You will get taken over. Solomon has constantly been trying to get us to think. That's the point of this story. Sometimes, man, you don't need to learn something new. You need to remember something old. I mean, how many times have people sit down with me and they say, man, can you give me some new revelation? Can you give me some new text? Can you give me some, like, just cool way to look at this in the Hebrew and Greek? And Okay, slow down. Most of your growing in godliness literally is inextricably tied to you practicing that which you already know. I cannot say this over and over and over again. You do not need something new. You do not just sit down with a pastor or an elder or search your Bible and pray and say, okay, God, wherever I open it up, give me something new. You need to already walk in what God has laid before you for some of you years on end. Some of you guys have been walking with Jesus for years and you know what he's asked of you, you know what wisdom looks like and yet you refuse to do it and you're looking for some place hidden under the carpet or behind the door thinking that'll eventually spark you or create some magic light that'll allow you to walk in rightness. And I'm saying, Paul says in Philippians 4, hey, all these things you've seen in me, practice them. All these things you've heard from me, practice them. He goes, man, you don't need something new from me. Just keep practicing what you've heard from me. You already know this. I've said this over and over and over again. So what does that look like for you as you sit in sermon after week after week after week, as you gather with other people to make disciples, as you're encouraged in the word? What does it look like? Do you constantly leave looking for something beyond that? Or do you say, man, I need to walk in what God gave me right now? Right, daily bread. That's what Solomon is encouraging us in. So what is he doing? He's continuing to get at how we think. This is so important. Because in life under the sun, if we do not have a God who rules and reigns, who is good, who enacts justice in the end, if we do not come from anywhere and we're not headed to anywhere, our thinking will be totally ridiculous. We will choose things that make no sense. We will come to believe things that are silly. 
as you see situations where the poor get ripped off and the rich gain by cheating, you have to learn how to discern that. Either let it ruin your world or that there's a God who sees all things, who's omniscient, who's omnipresent, who's omnipotent. As you walk through suffering and pain and difficulty, you need to have a way to think rightly. It's not, wow, I have pain and difficulty no one else does. It's, no, all people will. It's who chooses to walk with the God who made them or who chooses to walk without him. That's what we've been discussing the last 14 weeks is when situations arise that you are not prepared for, that snatch you up like fish in a net, how do you think? How do you process? Where do you go? Do you go to the Word of God? Do you go to the people of God? Or do you go to your own wisdom and ingenuity? He's pulling together all the last five weeks, and he's reminding us the way we think is imperative because of what's at stake. Now, what's at stake, brothers and sisters? (laughs) He said this two weeks ago. God made man upright. Right, yet we perverted it and we all strayed. Isaiah 53, right? We, we took the straight path that he made. Post Genesis 3, we all walk the crooked path. We all stray. We all suppress what God wants. We think we're the manager of our own destiny, but we're really a fugitive to our own destiny and we think we know the way out when he offers the way in. And so we constantly work and operate as if we will dig inside our minds in such a way that we'll reveal divine wisdom, even though divine wisdom has to be given outside of you. So we think we know the thoughts of God even though we can't know the thoughts of God without God giving you the thoughts of God. And we think we're smart. And we think we have things figured out. And here he's showing you that man, sin and wickedness is in us. We're all off track. God made man upright. That was his good design. And we chose to sin. And we perverted and polluted the human race. And we are all now born by nature and choice sinners. So wickedness and rebellion is in you, not by being taught over time, but in you from day one since birth. Listen, I always say if you disagree with this, look at your kids. What teaches my son to bite me when he doesn't get his way? Like, There's nothing natural about that other than original sin. What teaches kids to be selfish from day one? What teaches them to cry and whine when they want milk? What teaches the soul to want to live life the way he wants, not the way God wants? And so we're just learning that from day one out of the gate, we need something to renew us. So we have deep-seated flaws. Therefore, we cannot think rightly about God, and we cannot think rightly about the ways of God unless our minds are transformed. Unless you're made new. (laughs) This book is bland, apart from the Holy Spirit of God. So some of you guys sit and go, man, it's so boring on Sunday. It could be me. But the other part is, it just could be that you don't have the illumination. You need to be made new. You need to trust in a Christ who rose and offers his own mind to you. It says those who are in Christ have the mind of Christ. Right, you're not, it's salvation, you're not just forgiven of sin, you're actually given a new heart and a new mind. Amazing what happens at our conversion. And so here he's showing us this is at stake. You naturally do not consider the weight and significance of sin in your life. That's not natural. You're not walking around going, man, this sin's really gonna kill me, it's really gonna damn me, it's really gonna harm me. You're going, man, how can I get more of it? Or how can I cheat in? How can I get some of it and then get away with some? That's the natural bent of your mind. It's not to say, hey, this is serious, this is weighty, this is eternal in value. It's not the way that we think. Listen, we do not operate from a place of neutrality. I feel like we think that, that we're born and then we kind of are like, yeah, I think I'll move this way to perceive things and move this way. No, 
You know, all of us, myself included, from day one are bent to perceive things totally wrongly. Sin has perverted the way we think and feel about everything. So this is why it is a strong call from Solomon, not for just positive thinking, but right thinking. Thinking that is filled with the mind of Christ. Now here's why this matters. Um, You and I are all products of our thinking, right? You got Proverbs 23, right? Scripture's say this over and over and over, that that what he thinks is that which he is. Now, Plato didn't say that. God said it. Right? You've got Romans 12. If you're going to be a good, true vessel of worship to God, then you need to renew your what? Your mind. Um, 1 Peter 5 will say, if you want to really defend yourself against satanic warfare, against the enemy of darkness, then you need to be sober-minded. Colossians 3, if you want to have a life that has affection stirred for God, that knows what it means to walk deeply with Jesus, you're going to set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. The Bible's ruthlessly committed to this understanding of the mind. That is why God gave us a book. Do you ever wonder? Why didn't he give us a CD or a movie? He gave us a book because by nature, God wants us to think. It's not a ritual, it's written. So he's going, man, I want you to think. I want you to study. I want to use the mind I've given you. I'm going to use my word infused with my spirit to actually grow you and change you and conform you to a new way of understanding. So your natural thought patterns are replaced with supernatural ones. It's amazing. He's showing that this is what happens. Let me just briefly give you a theology of the mind. I want you to think through a couple of these things to help you get into what Solomon is pushing us in with this wisdom understanding. You have um, basically three kind of texts that I love to kind of see a thread. Um, It starts with Romans 1. Romans 1.28 says this. It'll be on the screen. Uh, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Okay, here's what happens in Romans 1. He just lays out human history. Hey, you want to be your own God. You want to do things your own way. God says, hey, don't do that. Don't go that direction. Don't think that way. Don't chase it. It's going to kill you. And we say, nope, want to be my own God anyways. I'm going to do what I want, do what my flesh wants, do what my mind wants, do what my own emotions want. You keep chasing until he says, hey, please don't do that. Please don't do that. I'm patient. I can rescue you from the flames and you say like a kid going back to the stove I want to touch it I want to touch it I want to touch it eventually he says and this is terrifying this is the passive wrath of God going fine go ahead and chase it and you chase it and you're given over to what he calls a depraved or a debased mind to where this is the uncontrollable damning nature of lust it has no limit yet it decreases in satisfaction over time So it has no ceiling. So you keep getting into more shamelessness and idolatry and chasing it and chasing it in your depravity because you have no basis for morality anymore to where you find yourself at a place where you don't think right at all and you're chasing something with no ceiling and you're endlessly frustrated and greedy in heart because the satisfaction continues to die down. That's why people live in lust. Because it never satisfies their heart. Otherwise you wouldn't keep chasing it and keep growing in depth. But then look at this next text. So we know we're intrinsically bent not on the things of God, but the things of man. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says this. So not only are we depraved in our mind, in this case, the God of the world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. What he's doing here is showing you not only is your mind depraved, not only is it bent on not the things of God, but the things of yourself, it's also blind. 
So you can't even see the right way. You can't even think the right way. There is, there's blockage there. There's blinders on that need to be removed to see the light of the glory of Jesus Christ. So the natural mind is blind and it is depraved. And then Ephesians 4, this is a big one. The mind is futile. The same word that Solomon uses over and over and over. Uh, Ephesians 4 says this, verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. So here's what you have. Futility means vanity. The same word Solomon's been using over and over. I tried multiple wives. I tried fame. I tried getting the biggest house with the best parties, with the best property, with the best fortune. And in the end, it all ended in tears. My satisfaction decreased. My uncontrollable lust went nowhere. So follow this thread here. We are born, as Solomon says, upright. And then, through the fall, through sin, through us following in our mom and dad, Adam and Eve, we inherit their sin with a natural mind. The natural mind now is totally depraved, bent on the things of man's self, not on the things of God. And he says, not only are you depraved, but you're blind. You have a blind mind and a blind heart. And because you have a blind mind and a blind heart, he goes, the result of this blindness, you have no basis for morality. And because you have no basis for morality, that is why you begin indulging in shamelessness and idolatry. And that's why you continue to indulge in shameless and idolatry long enough to where it depraves your thinking process until you finally give yourself fully over to it where it's totally futile and vain because there's literally no meaning in what you're chasing except you looking for satisfaction in that. And so this lust continues to grow in your depraved, blind, futile heart and mind. Your thinking is totally skewed until you meet Jesus Christ. Until you meet someone who can actually show you a way out of depravity to illuminate blind eyes and to give you a life that's not futile but full of meaning. That's what happens in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So here's the question. How does Jesus invade this space in your mind? How do, I, how do I learn to look for the poor man who is wisdom, the Holy Spirit that whispers to me the thoughts of God? How does Jesus Christ's body and death and resurrection play any role here? Well, it has everything to do with it. It has everything to do with the wisdom that Solomon's getting at you to understand. And that's just fundamentally that in the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is absolutely concerned with your mind. It's concerned with you understanding how to walk in wisdom rooted in Jesus and his person and work. Not rooted in just thinking better or thinking clear, but thinking rightly. Salvation happens, and some of you guys have experienced this, right? All of a sudden, you understand the things of God, sin, Christ, the world, rightly. And I don't really know any other text that's better than 1 Corinthians 2 to show you how this happens. Through Christ in his death and resurrection. Look at 1 Corinthians 2, verse 11. This is how you move from a mind that is depraved, blind, and futile, and into one that is clear, life-giving, meaningful, and seeing. He goes, for a person's thoughts 
don't, who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, go back to Solomon, but the spirit who is from God, spirit of wisdom, right? The Holy Spirit is called, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to judge, be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him, but we have the mind of Jesus Christ. <laughs> Amazing. You now have a mind that you wouldn't otherwise have. I talk to people sometimes and it becomes apparent that, man, you're just trying to manage sin. You're just trying to be righteous. You're trying to be this person that looks like a Christian without operating like a Christian. It's like a car that has no engine. You're wondering why the windshield wipers don't work properly and the lights and everything else. And I mean, I kind of see it kind of looks like a car, feels like a car, but man, there's nothing driving it, nothing making it work in fullness. That's the Holy Spirit of God igniting your soul, removing blinders, removing futility, removing blindness, getting you out of depravity onto a place where you don't walk in uncontrollable lust anymore. You see God is satisfying. You realize he made you for himself and his pleasure. He didn't make you for his stuff and not his pleasure. And that's the fundamental sin of the universe in Genesis 3. We want what God gives and we don't want God. So Solomon is showing you wisdom's gonna come probably from the most unlikely people, maybe in a room of just 300 people. I don't know, in a warehouse that's weird with lanterns and lights and people singing. And wisdom might creep up on you and speak to you from God in ways that you don't expect. And he goes, be careful because you're going to want to pay attention to it when it's from God. You're not going to want to run to the latest magazine or Fortune 500 or Cosmopolitan or Barnes & Noble. You want to run to where true light and life is found in the word of God. You want right thinking. You don't just want positive thinking. So here he is showing us that this is incredible because from birth we think wrongly. And listen, this is why. Before Christ, and some of you guys still feel this way, you can't seem to figure out what in the world the purpose of meaning and this life is. You're constantly in a state of frustration. Why does suffering happen? Why does evil happen? Why does, right? And that's in there until... The truth gets spoken in whatever way, through preaching, through a friend, through you reading the word, through your time in prayer, to where your darkened heart gets a door opened and the light of Jesus Christ starts to pierce through. And your mind starts to become enlightened. And you start to see and understand things the way they are. And all of a sudden you go, that makes sense! Right? I mean, in this series in Ecclesiastes, some of you guys have literally written me an email that said, it makes sense now. Like, like why I come to these conclusions, why I assume these certain things, why I'm experiencing frustration, why I'm not experiencing life. I've been viewing the world, I've been viewing the cosmos, I've been viewing my own self, not through the lens of God or the spirit of God, but through my own finite, puny, public school brain that has no idea how to discern things rightly. 
All of a sudden, you humble yourself with a contrite heart. You acknowledge who is in full power and authority, and you say, I submit myself to you. I need you. I cannot do it on my own. I need forgiveness of sin. You repent and turn from your sin. Trust in this glorious Christ who doesn't just change your heart, doesn't just forgive you, doesn't just make you new, but gives you his mind. And you start going, this is making sense now. Why am the way I am? Why work is the way it is? Why my posture, why my emotions, why all these things happen the way that they do? He goes, man, then you go, it makes sense. And only because God in his grace takes people who were incapable of seeing his beauty, his splendor, his worth, his majesty, his forgiveness, his ways. He took broken people that had no capability to see that. And he says, hey, I'm going to gladly take all the right wrath towards you in your wrong thinking, in your idolatry, in your desire to be God when you can't. And I'm going to put that on myself. He empties himself, humbles himself, lives the obedient life as a substitute for our sin and puts it in the grave and kills our sin in full, pays the debt in full, and he says, you can be risen with me now, you can have new life, and you can have my spirit, and you can walk in wisdom to life that is to its fullness, John 10, 10. God does that in his gospel. This is why we're in a position we find her in before Christ, because we've suppressed the truth. Listen, Romans 1 is clear. Um, we choose to disbelieve God. Now, some of you might not like that, but it says by nature that's what we do. So there are really no genuine atheists. And I've talked with a lot of atheists. John 14 will say, hey, the Holy Spirit comes to convict the whole world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So even though you don't want to believe in him, and I always find it so strange when atheists hate God, it's like they hate unicorns. They don't exist, but they hate him. So they like rail against him, write things about him. I'm going, well, if he doesn't exist, why do you hate him? Why are you writing things about something that's imaginary? Anyways, so, so here's, here's the, the deal with this. You, you have these atheists that aren't really genuine atheists at all, and they don't really disbelieve in God. They choose to push him out of their minds because they do not want him running their life. The gospel is fundamentally surrender. It's an act of humiliation on our part. I don't know the way. I don't know how to see this thing. I don't know how to do life. I don't know how to operate. I'm born broken. <laughs> Beautiful in the image and likeness of God, in the sense of dignity, value, and worth, character traits, but man, we are born with effects and deep-seated flaws. Everyone who professes to disbelieve in God is done by choice and goes against themselves. Listen to what Aldous Huxley said, a prominent atheist. He said this. He, he finally decided to admit why. At least he was honest. He said, I, I had a reason not for wanting to believe in God. For to disbelieve in God was the basis for my sexual and political freedom. I don't want to have to give an account to anybody. So I will disbelieve him out of existence. Eventually, at least Huxley says, hey, I'm just choosing to disbelieve him out of existence because I don't want to submit my life to him. I don't want him telling me how life should work and how things should operate. Now, this is why some of you are here. Because you're so frustrated and can't seem to get any traction. And you're looking for answers. 
You're going to, there's got to be something different than what the world just gives me, from just what the material world has to offer me. And you're frustrated because you'll never be fully satisfied with all the world has to offer, just like Solomon. Because we were made for God and made for his pleasure, and you're going to remain forever dissatisfied until you find your satisfaction in him. So here's my question for those of us that are in that camp. Are you even willing to admit the frustration today? Are you even willing to get at a place in your heart where you just admit, lay the cards on the table and go, yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a deep frustration of mine. I'm dissatisfied. And I've tried work. I've tried pornography. I've tried multiple spouses. I've tried money. I've tried the house with the, the fence. I've tried the cars. I've tried self-indulgence. I've tried even wisdom and just going to school and get my master's and then doctorate and then double doctorate and then triple doctorate and I've tried all that, yet there's something in me that still remains dissatisfied. Are you willing to admit that? And then if you're willing to admit that, are you willing to admit the source of that? Come to a place of honesty? Even if you don't have it all figured out? Okay, there's a source, which is sin, which is rebellion. Are you willing to admit that this morning? And then possibly admit then that you yourself are your own fugitive to your own destiny. That you're the one creating that. That God desires to reveal himself to you, that he is this morning, that part of this morning is him calling and wooing you to himself to show you the light and life of Jesus Christ. To show you that meaning is not found under the sun but over the sun in a God who made all things, who is good in all that he does who will one day fully do away with injustice and unfairness and wickedness and that those who know him will reign eternally with no fear of death and live with God and work yet with no toil and enjoy the finest affair, Isaiah says, but never be hungry and will use your suffering and mend it and heal it. And for those who don't, that he will absolutely rightly with good authority say, I never knew you, you're not of me, you never submitted your life to me, and cast you into eternal torment in hell, separated from him for all of eternity. Do you realize that that's, that's what's at stake here in how we think and how we make decisions? Someone's saying wisdom really matters. God has made us for himself. He's made you to experience his fullness. And those of you who don't understand it, maybe you're just angry about it and you're frustrated about it. And so you're determined just to disbelieve in God. I'm telling you, that's not the way to do it. He might pester you your whole life. I actually prayed this prayer that he might pester some of us at night and in our days until we'd finally turn to his grace and mercy. He would just pester us with his warmth and his kindness and pursue us. That's what he does in Christ. He chases you down. I don't want you. I don't want you. I'm going to have you. I don't want you. I don't want, no, I'm, I'm chasing you down through the slaughtering of my son who took all your wrath and all your sin in your place and there's nothing you can do about it to try to even earn me. 
You can get up and then try to do it. I'm going to level you again. You can get up and try to do it again. I'm going to level you again until you're at a place on the floor with no merits, grace alone, faith alone, and the work of my son. And I say, man, I've got Christ. That's all I have. Praise God. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Is all I need. That's all he needs to give me. My righteousness before him is solely based on the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone. My death died in his death too. My life rose in his risen life too. And his Holy Spirit is in me to empower me, use me, protect me, shield me, guide me, protect me, comfort me. Sometimes he's just going to chase you down. We've got stories like that in here. I love it. Oh, I just hated him, but he just kept pestering me. And then he saved me. Then he gave me a new mind. I love it. Augustine's put it well. He said this, a lot of you guys know this. You have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. This is the woman at the well, is it not? You guys know the story of the woman at the well? She's coming to the well. Samaritan woman, so many things involved in this, but Jesus meets her there, always on purpose. And she's getting water and he goes, hey, I'll give you a drink that'll quench your dissatisfaction. She goes, oh, praise God. I hate coming to this well. These are long trips. I can't wait to have it. He goes, no, no, no. I'm not talking about a physical cup. I'm not talking about literally building a well at your house. I'm talking about a drink that's not physical, that's divine, that's supernatural, that you can have that will quench your dissatisfaction. Well, I'm not really dissatisfied. Yeah, you are. You've had five husbands. You got one living man. How'd you know that? I'm God, right? And then, and then, she finds life. She accepts Christ as the full cup of living water, which quenches her dissatisfied heart that she was greedy and frustrated with for her life, trying to find. And how in the world could Christ give her a cup that could quench her dissatisfied heart? We all know, because he was on his way to take the cup of death, right? He was on his way to taste death for her so she could taste life. He was on his way to the cross to take all her shame, all her anger, all her resentment, all her dissatisfaction and sipping out well water that never satisfied her soul for water that would preserve her for eternity, where he would make her a daughter of the king. Scandalous grace. Where he would welcome her into a kingdom, satisfied with him, where that is all she would need. She doesn't chase the trinkets and toys of this life. Maybe there are wells you're searching after, right? That don't satisfy. There's nothing more beautiful and more strange in the whole universe than the gospel. Than Christ satisfying you, right? If you're a Christian, there's nothing more beautiful and more totally strange than Christ making us new. So here's what Solomon says. He says, we will never make sense of our life. We'll never make sense of our overarching existence. until we see God over the sun. And because we don't make sense of our overarching existence, you will never make sense of your days. So to make sense of your days, you need to make sense of your overarching existence, that God made you for him, that he made good gifts, we've covered this, for his glory, for you to enjoy them so it calls you to worship him. Not worship them as gods or functional saviors, but enjoy more the God who rescued you and saved you. It's amazing that as he talks about death, right, uh, repeatedly in here, that, that death is the end, searching for meaning. You ever thought about this, how 
we go through life looking for significance, right? Um, you might move, you might change jobs, and you're always wanting people to know you. You know what's awesome? I was thinking about this this week. Like, the one place that you never have to worry about, does someone know who I am, is glory, is heaven, is in the Christian faith, that he knows my anxieties, that he knows my cares, that he knows my needs, that I don't even know what satisfies me, but he knows what satisfies me. I don't even know how marriage should work, but he knows how marriage should work. I don't even know how relationships work. I don't even know how this system of the world should work. It, he knows. And that he actually buys you, purchases you, seals you, and dwells you, writes you in the book of life, and keeps you for eternity to know your name and that you might be known by him. That's profound. What love, what grace. Let's ask God for help to walk towards him in that way. I want to give some time of reflection. I don't know where God has you this morning. thought about Psalm 23, even as I was preaching this sermon, that we have a great shepherd that leads us by still waters, who restores our souls. Maybe you guys are thinking you're at the water, but you don't have the shepherd with you. You don't know the good shepherd. So you're going to other wells and other places that you think will satisfy your soul. David says that's, that happens because you have the right shepherd leading you to that right river. Do you have Christ? Do you have his leading? Do you have his direction? Do you have his wisdom? Your family that's that small army about to be besieged by the assault of the kingdom of darkness. Do you know how to look for the wise poor man who is Jesus Christ? Who doesn't look like wisdom, but is the fullness of wisdom and who demonstrated it in its greatest glory by purchasing you on a cross through his death and resurrected life. Some of you just need to admit your emptiness, your lostness. Yes, it is a humbling place to be. And it's the kind of people God loves and God saves. God, would you help us to have right thinking? Would you help us to enjoy Christ? Would you help us to seek for wisdom not under the sun, but over the sun? Would you help us in our frailty and humanness? Would you help us in our situations that seem like a dead-end street this morning? Might you illuminate our minds with the light and life that is Jesus Christ. God, would you help some brothers and sisters this morning to actually walk in the obedience from the wisdom they've already been given? God, protect them from just searching out something else, something new. Might they rest and enjoy and move forward in what you've already promised, what you've already explained, and what you've already clarified. Might you get others up maybe out of their lazy boy? fueled and empowered by your grace, not to live lives of righteousness to earn merits or obtain forgiveness, 
but because of who they are, redeemed new people in the kingdom of God, might they live as they've already been made. Might those be natural things for them. God, for those in this room that do not have a saving understanding of your son, God, might you continue to pester their hearts and bring them to a lowly place where they find great rest and joy in a king who sees their dissatisfaction, who sees their uncontrollable lust of idolatry, who sees their depraved, blind, futile mind and invades that space. Would you free us this morning, Christian and non-Christian, with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Might repentance mark our lives. And as we observe your supper, might we be reminded of this great gospel that didn't just give us a new heart, but gives us a new mind. Help us in Jesus' name, amen.